I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We begin today with a truncated monologue because I do want to jump into the news of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, so we bring in as our guest our Breitbart London Bureau Chief, Oliver Lane. We talk about her passing and her legacy, why the monarchy in the UK has endured and why it's mostly been a good thing, especially under her reign, and what the future holds in the UK and beyond with the change over to King Charles III. But before we do that, I do cover a few things in the monologue, such as a Las Vegas journalist who was possibly, perhaps, murdered by a Democrat politician. Seems like a big deal to me, especially when we keep hearing about how we're headed towards a civil war. But, you know, who am I to say? Also, the zombie media cartel bill is DED dead for now, which is great news. But of course, we have to continue to stay vigilant on that. Steve Bannon was handcuffed in New York. California continues to embarrass itself when it comes to energy and more. And a few other stories get uh, discussed in the top of the show before our interview. Let's get into it. mention a few headlines before we go to Oliver Lane and discuss the Queen. And I think there's a couple of really, really big ones that I don't want to miss before we get going. Um, the the first one is that this Democrat official arrested for fatally stabbing an investigative journalist who accused him of corruption in Clark County, Nevada, uh, a Clark County, Nevada Democrat uh, a guy named Robert Tellus was booked in Clark County Detention Center for suspicion of murder of a guy named Jeff German, who is a reporter. And he was found dead outside of his home with multiple stab wounds. Uh, and this was last Saturday. And Tellus is now facing murder charges. He's going to appear. He appeared in court um, yesterday. And a police found his DNA at the murder scene of the reporter. And I bring this up not because this is impossible. Journalists get murdered um, all over the country and all over the world. And I wouldn't say all over the country. Uh, It's rare in the United States. Um, And it's inexcusable, obviously, and horrible and a huge threat to democracy and third world stuff. The latest example, third world stuff happening in the United States. Uh, But of course, I make this point to note that if this had happened, if this is a Republican, um, who had done this, then it would be nonstop news 24-7, We'd, probably for years, probably, I would say, maybe five-year news cycle. Um, I think that it would still be cited in political speeches for whoever runs for president in 2028. We'll be talking about the journalist who was murdered by the Republican. Um, but this is a Democrat who didn't like the reporting done by a, a mainstream reporter, Las Vegas Journal Review. Um, I think it's the biggest, if not one of the biggest papers in uh, in, in Las Vegas and just stabs him to death, apparently, at least according to DNA evidence. And it certainly uh, appears as though oh, the reporter was called a bully by Telus. He needs to grow a little bit thicker skin, in my opinion. So uh, we'll see how this plays out, but just uh, it's going to get lost in the shuffle today. I wanted to bring it out at the outset. Uh, another good piece of good news is the JCPA, the media cartel bill that we discussed yesterday, where Senator Cotton is dead for now. And um, this is 
this is a good thing, needless to say. And I, I don't want to take too big of a victory lap because I would like for it to go away. I don't want to do a lot of gloating here because this is one where it's a big win for Breitbart and it's one that would have certainly passed if we weren't being vigilant um, about it. But it is one where I'm, I'm not um, interested um, in... I'm, I'm, I, it was an interesting day because Senator Kennedy who is typically very, he's very interesting, but he doesn't always vote properly. He was kind of trashing Breitbart yesterday and suggesting that we're in an age of partisan media, which was somewhat mind-blowing to watch because it's as if the New York Times and the Washington Post aren't partisan. Yeah, we're partisan, but we're openly partisan. And we still put truth and facts first and our opinion second. But it's very, and we state all that. And so if he came on the show, I'd explain to him exactly what we're doing. <clears throat> And we've reached out to him many times to be on the show, and he's never come on. Um, and for the, our audience, really likes his content. He's very compelling on social media. Um, but he was lamenting the area, the era of partisan journalism, and I, I, we got the impression he was talking about us from the context. And it's just odd because yes, we're we like traditional conservative values, very open about that, very clear about it. And uh, th that's it. We always want to give you the true information first. And then you should get, pick up our bias, not even how we write the stories. It should be mostly, you know, in our topic selection. That I don't want to cover the exact same stories from the exact same angles as the Washington Post and New York Times does. And that's the mandate that um, I've given my staff. That's the directive. So... I mean, how many, do you think Dean Biquette and the New York, is he still the editor editor New York Times or has he moved on? But anyway, do you think whoever's writing the New York Times now would explain what they do? How they cook everything? It's, 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 so, it's so annoying, it's so irritating because they're so partisan and they have so many people from corporate America on their boards as I wrote about in Breaking the News. But anyway, um, frustrations aside, so he was kind of, dinging us early in the day but then he ended up coming out on the side of the good guys chuck grassley disappointed by committing to back the bill the media cartel bill so the day got off to kind of a bad start but then the deal eventually got blown up and pretty early in the morning or i guess a, a by lunchtime during the markup phase which was yesterday but the committee uh that was the a, a caucus of people opposed to the bill including senators Blackburn, Cotton, Lee, um, Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan. Coalition was just getting too big. And even though there were amendments that were offered, um, even though there were amendments that, that were offered, it did seem like it was actually losing support. And um, it was a, it, it's a good thing. And uh, it's it's delayed, but it's delayed indefinitely, and we think it's probably done, and it probably won't come back next Congress. So that, that's where we think we're at on that. It's good news. And I'm trying to be a little bit circumspect on it just because I don't want to. This is one where I, I want to go away so much. Uh, I'm more, I'm inclined not to spend too much time giving Breitbart credit, which, of course, Breitbart gets all the credit. But I, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it because this is a bad one. This is not one. This is not just some sort of a random battle that we're we're fighting. This is one that I think would be an existential threat to our business and our ability to bring you the news every day if this thing had passed. So good stuff, and thanks to all of you who were vocal, uh, if you were in your support in your uh, uh, condemnation of the bill, which would have allowed for m giant media companies 
and then they reduced it to very big media companies and uh, big tech to collude. And um, tech liked it because tech was suppressing our coverage of it. So we could tell they liked it. They liked the idea. Um, so those are two huge ones. So a Democrat murders a journalist, apparently, and the JCPA media cartel bill goes down. So all that to start the day. A um, couple other things uh, I will throw out there before we talk about the, the big news of the day. Uh, hurricanes made landfall in Mexico and it's triggering concerns in Southern California that Southern California could get a year's worth of rain over the weekend, which is stunning. I bring this up in case there are any Los Angelinos in the audience and uh, Southern Californian residents, which is where Breitbart's home base is. Um, so I figure there are, even though uh, many of you probably listen on delay. So uh, get prepared for that. Uh, get your favorite supplies, hunker down, perhaps could be coming, or perhaps it'll miss entirely, which is what always seems to be the case because California gets them, uh, the Southern California in particular seems to get no rain. Um, the Oberlin College Baker, family-run bakery, gets the uh, $36.5 million settlement finally from Oberlin after the Woke College was defaming them with false racism claims. So uh, finally, finally, the Ohio Bakery that we've profiled on this show, um, Gibson's Bakery, and uh, which was smeared as racist and um, was after this, the, the store owner claimed uh, or I'm sorry, the school had claimed the store owner chased down three black students in uh, November 2016. Um, and this was the, uh, uh, th- th- they were described as racist when there was really, it was involved, it was because of stealing. That's why, so it was not because of hatred of blacks, it was because of stealing stuff. And so that was the kind of saga and it spun out of control and then, um, Oberlin was supposed to, uh, but end up that there was shoplifting that took place and that was confirmed. And then the, uh, this is where the settlement took place. And then Oberlin college, which has tons and tons of money wouldn't pay out. And they finally did. So that's good news there. A positive story for you. Uh, the department of defense can't explain to American taxpayers why Congress should approve more Ukrainian funding. We've been asking them to try to explain. And um, the I keep asking for more of your money. The Ukraine should keep getting more of your money. Uh, it is nonstop the desire to send our, your taxpayer dollars to Ukraine. It, it is a lot of people saw this coming, and now it's here. So this this is the problem with when we got that forty billion dollar check, and no one would explain how we were going to hold our government accountable to make sure that money went to the right spot. And I was not a send no money to Ukraine guy because I think keeping Russia at bay and uh, depleting Russia's energy and fighting forces is probably positive for the world. But the when they jacked up the number to 40 and then they wouldn't explain where it was going, you knew it was going to be more than 40 and you knew it was going to continue. Um, the media is struggling with the fact that John Fetterman, who is the Democrat running for the Congress in, I'm sorry, for the Senate in Pennsylvania, how he can't speak. So they've framed as now he is speech issues, speech issues since his stroke that he had earlier this year. Now, I would say that he's got brain issues. But the way it's being framed in the press, Fetterman's lingering speech issues after his stroke. Philadelphia Inquirer writes, uh, what impact will it have in the Senate run? Well, I, I think it's brain issues, and that's the main thing. 
that the speech problems come from his brain, which now is not functional. Uh, it's not functional because he's ill. He's not well. And I think they feel like it's probably too late to replace him on the ballot, I guess. They could probably start running a write-in candidate, and they'd have a chance against Dr. Oz. The Democrats would. But um, I, I think that spin gives you the impression that there is still a chance that Oz loses, despite the fact um, that they, despite the fact that Oz is such a lousy candidate. Uh, D.C. council members are blaming Republican governors for the migrant crisis in their town. They turned us into a border town. They're saying they're very upset because the uh, governor of um, Texas, Greg Abbott, and now apparently governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, is doing a similar thing by shipping migrants to D.C. Obviously, he's getting shipped to D.C. because the federal government will not help those border communities. Won't do it. Um. And they feel like illegal immigration is great so long as the illegal immigrants stay in Texas. But once they come to sanctuary cities like uh, Washington, D.C., then all of a sudden, then it is some sort of form of racism or corruption or bad thing to do. And Muriel Bowser touts that she doesn't want a wall and that D.C. is a sanctuary city. She does this very, very publicly. And so Governor Abbott had the genius plan of giving her illegal immigrants to deal with. They can't handle it. They are now of a crisis. And uh, it, the, the point is to make it into a border town because there's no reason the border towns should be penalized on be, just simply because of geography. It is the policies that come from Washington, D.C. that make this possible. So I continue to love this. continues to be one of my favorite stories of the year. And infinite credit to Governor Abbott, et cetera, comes up on the show virtually on a daily basis. Uh, last one I'll bring up before we go to Oliver Lane and talk about the Queen is Steve Bannon was uh, hauled off in handcuffs and he's being charged with using the We Build the Wall cash for personal use. Now, uh, a lot of you guys who are out there got a lot of email that when um, Steve was running the We Build the Wall effort that we weren't covering enough of Breitbart News. We did maybe one segment on it and maybe two, uh, but my arm was getting twisted constantly that this was a good thing to promote. And you guys know that Steve used to host the show. I used to co-host the show with him. Um, and I um, I think very highly of a lot of the stuff Steve does. His energy is incomparable. Um, but I was never a fan of We Build the Wall. I always thought We Build the Wall was mostly designed to undermine Donald Trump because Trump couldn't get the wall done. So it was not helping Trump. It was making Trump look like a bozo. And then I also thought that the people who were in charge of it and some of them I got to know pretty well on a personal level and I had at least one of them on the show were the type of people who could be grifters. Now, I don't consider Steve a grifter at all. I think Steve is genuinely down for the cause. But that said, the people he'd put in charge of this thing we're grifters. And I don't know if Steve knew that or not. Um, I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt on a personal level. But I will say that the people in charge were not good guys. And there's some really bad things that are happening in this case, I think, for Steve, which is, first of all, he's not. Th this is uh, not pardonable the way he was pardoned at a federal level by President Trump. But the Manhattan District Attorney's Office 
does not that doesn't apply there. So that's not a good fact. Uh, the other not good fact is that Steve said he approves all deals when it comes to we build the wall. Now, I think this is classic Steve bravado. I don't think this is a real thing. I don't think he did approve all of all deals. I don't think he had time to approve of all deals. Um, and I think he paid himself a little bit out of it, but I don't think it was very much relative to the $25 million he hauled in. Uh, but I do think that it is noteworthy that Steve uh, did say I approve all deals. That does not help him. There's a text message that says that. So, again, I don't think it's real that he approved all deals, but there is a text message that says that that happened. And uh, the other thing is that they apparently had some fine print in the disclaimer about the we build the wall or or they had maybe it wasn't fine print. Maybe it was very bold print. I haven't fully immersed myself in the story and I will as time goes on. Uh, but they made it pretty clear that all the money was supposed to go to the wall. The, mall, the wall was not supposed to go to personal finances. And the griftery types who were running this thing did put the money towards personal finances. And those people are already in prison. At least some of them are. So they're already in jail because they didn't get president. They didn't get. Um, they didn't get pardons from President Trump. So they said, "You send the money. We won't use it for personal purposes. We'll use it to build the wall," which I already, I always thought was kind of bogus and made Trump look stupid. But it turns out that the money was just used for personal stuff for the most part. There was some wall built, but the wall was very shoddy. And I think that there's some bad stuff here. So um, we'll see how long this goes. And we'll, we'll, we'll do some more commentary on this. But I don't talk about Steve a ton on the broadcast for obvious reasons. Uh, complicated to do when he used to be the host of the show. And used to be our boss at Breitbart. But uh, this is not a good one. This is of all of, all of the... Uh, and he was kind of walking around yelling that he has not yet begun to fight. Uh, th th this is There's going to be a big fight here. This is not one. This is not a pro forma one. This is not just a targeted harassment. Of course it is to a degree. But this does, this feels like a bad one. Feels like a bad one, legally speaking. All right. Um, I guess we will. Let's take a break. I went longer than I thought. But I wanted to get some of that stuff out there because I felt like I needed to get on the record and some of those things. And then we're going to bring in Oliver Lane. Oliver Lane is our London Bureau Chief. And we will get into the biggest news of the day, which is the Great Reset was taking place in the UK. The passing of Queen Elizabeth and uh, King Charles, or at least we assume he'll be King Charles. He is, I guess, uh, can choose a new name. But we'll get all the mechanics of it, what it all means, and talk about the Queen's legacy with Oliver when we come back on Breitbart News Daily. is our London Bureau Chief and one of the most knowledgeable people about UK and European news. He's a great newsman and also a person who understands tradition, I think understands uh, what the monarchy means, not just in the United Kingdom, but beyond. And so he's a perfect person to talk about in uh, the wake of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Let's hear from Oliver Lane, our London Bureau Chief. I think that the monarchy of the United Kingdom represents a lot of positive things. Now, of course, there is an element of it which could be off-putting to a society that broke away from it and fought a war to break away from it and has a constitutional republic as our constitutional mandate. 
Uh, and that all makes sense to me, but there, it also represents something else. It represents tradition. It represents the importance of heritage, about coming from something. And it also represents how the world is not fair. And some people get born into certain things, and those people have responsibilities to make good use of their gifts. And a lot, a lot of us, most of us, virtually all of us, are born with less, and we're supposed to do the best with what we have. And that's a life lesson that cannot be taught often enough because so often a lot of the pain we feel in our personal lives is a dealing with this realization that life is not fair and never will be. So I've always been partial to the monarchy and we've edited Breitbart with that in mind. We've always been supporters of the royal family and this tradition. Um, which I think was handled pretty brilliantly by Queen Elizabeth in a time when, of course, this was going to go out of style, still maintain beloved status in the UK and also around the world. And she had a lot of responsibilities and a symbol of elegance and class in a time where elegance and class were going out of style. Yeah, I can't say enough nice stuff uh, about Queen Elizabeth, but I know someone who can say much more and probably more eloquently than I can is Oliver Lane, who's our London Bureau Chief. Oliver, thanks for hanging on the line with me, but I want to give you a lot of time talk about the Queen's legacy and what happens next. Uh, but first, speak to the uh, some of the things I just said about the monarchy itself and Queen Elizabeth II and her life. Alex, good morning, and uh, thank you for having me on today. Obviously, it's, um, it's a very sad time over here in the United Kingdom. Um, the country is officially in mourning and will be for uh, 10 days. That's the, the state mourning period, uh, because we've had a terrible shock. Um, the Queen, of course, was photographed with the brand-new Prime Minister on Tuesday, standing, smiling, contracting the business of state. She was performing a constitutional role, um, ha- you know, handling the changeover from Boris Johnson, our old prime minister, to Liz Truss, our new one. So to then have the news pretty much on bang on to the hour, t- exactly two days later uh, that Her Majesty had died, came as an enormous shock. Uh, it's not as if she'd gone into hiding. She'd been slowly uh, uh, deteriorating, if I can use so crude a term, for months and people thinking, where's the Queen? What's happening? Um, it went from the Queen is in the public eye working till the Queen has unfortunately died uh, just within 48 hours. And you know, this actually speaks to a piece that I wrote uh, yesterday evening um, about the Queen's incredible work ethic uh, and how she's had this absolute lifetime of, of devoted service uh, where she was insisting on on working doing her her constitutional role which of course is part of uh, britain's evolved constitution right until the very end and that reflects and i'm gonna i'm gonna do a little quote here from a speech she made on her 21st birthday when she was still a princess before she became queen when she said i declare before you all that my whole life whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. Um, And that's an easy thing to say when you're 21 years old, maybe. Um, And I'm sure a lot of us have said things when we were 21 that we didn't mean and uh, came to ignore. But that was a promise that she kept in really the most spectacular style over an incredible 70-year reign, a a record-breaking 70-year reign. She's the longest ever reigning monarch in the UK and actually the second longest in known human history anywhere on Earth. Well, what's the, who's uh, first? You know, p- purely in terms of human longevity, that's an achievement. But the fact that... Who, who, who is first? Uh, actually, you don't top your head? Who, who, sorry, who was ahead of the Queen was... Yeah, yeah. Was Louis the Sixteenth of France, um, if I wow. remember off the top of my head. Um, and really, if she'd lived for, I think, just just a few more months, she would have beaten that record as well. But it evidently was not to be. So, But you know, the, the important thing to take away here is that you know, not only was it an achievement of human endurance, she managed to live a long time. Well done. 
um, but also that she um, spent her entire life in service. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure the vast majority of people on this call and most of the people on this uh, on this um, on this show and the vast majority of people they will ever know will be long retired for decades by the time they hit their 96th birthday. Um, but she kept working. And that is an incredible thing. Um, Oliver, first of all, condolences to you or your country and your whole team of Brightport London. Uh, I want to talk about the, when the, some of the highlights from her life, because, you know, they've got a huge Netflix series on it. So I think a lot of people in the audience probably know quite a bit about it, which is portrayed uh, almost entirely in a positive light. But it is so varied and she was involved in so many essential things during her 70 year reign. Uh, What are some of the things that really stick out to you in terms of her life and legacy? Well, there's lots of individual events, and we were we were discussing this in in, in the in the Breitbart London office yesterday. These incredible moments, these vignettes from her life that yeah make you smile, make you cry. Um, but actually, the like the, the big takeaway I think is um, like the sort of the great event that is her life is is the fact that in an age of constant change, and you know the past 70 years has been an age of constant change, perhaps one of the greatest ages of change in the whole of human history. Um, with the you know the third industrial revolution and and everything else um is that actually she managed to keep the monarchy together and you know upon her death it it is it is still an extremely popular um um, concept the united kingdom is not going to be moving away from that and that's in a time where basically everything else else in britain has changed and you know this is something that something else to consider is that you know people say oh you know the queen of england oh she's not the queen of england england isn't a country she's the queen of the United Kingdom, but not just that. She, upon her death, she was the queen of 15 countries, including the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Jamaica, and a whole, whole bunch of other smaller nations. Um, and the fact that we're talking about her and we're dedicating so much time to her on an American um, talk radio show is, is an indication of you know, her incredible popularity and her, in, her enduring image not just in those 15 nations, uh, Commonwealth, um, Commonwealth realms, as they're technically called, uh, but across the world. And I saw a, a fantastic quote from Her Majesty uh, yesterday about, and I think it explains to some degree why she's so enduringly popular in the United States, although it's, it's sort of an, a mirror image. She was describing, actually, why the British feel so at home in America, in the U.S., And she said that um, to British people, we do not consider America as being foreign. We don't consider it as being abroad. Uh, To us, to be in in America when when the British visit or if we we come to live in America, um, it feels like home because in many respects, our two nations are so similar. We share a common uh, culture, a common language. Um, Very importantly, in terms of when we talk about the monarchy, a common legal heritage, of course, Magna Carta and, and, and the rest, that is all intrinsically tied up with the royal family. Um, and I've read a lot about um, the Queen from American sources. I've read everything I possibly can about the Queen in the past 24 hours, as you'd expect. Um, but actually, by far the most intelligent thing I've read from an American author about the Queen since she's died is from our own Joel Pollack, who wrote a, a great piece called Why American Republicans Love the Queen. And he makes a fantastic point, and I, it's on the London homepage. I cannot recommend it enough as a read which is about actually how the United States, the United Kingdom came to, um, came to go their separate ways. And of course, there's this popular idea about you know, the, the American colonists rebelling against George III, but they weren't really rebelling against George III, although he was the, the figurehead, um, the, you know, the popular figurehead. Really, 
uh, by that time, the, the power in the United Kingdom and the British Empire was with Parliament, not with the Crown. We'd already fought a civil war in this country 100 years before to settle actually where the power was. And we had an all-powerful legislature um, of, of incredible power. And it was that which was... Um, which was dominating the American colonies and taxing you and you know, causing all these problems. Um, so, and in fact, the, the, the founding fathers, the framers of the, the Constitution, actually appealed to the king for aid against Parliament before, before the revolution happened. And that's, you know, I find that absolutely incredible. So there is this long sort of understanding between US Republicans and the monarchy, and that's part of it. The other part is, you know, which you spoke about at the beginning of the segment, Alex, is the innately conservative and traditional nature um, of the monarchy and the Queen embodied this perfectly and actually uh, my deputy uh, Jack Montgomery wrote a great piece um, this morning which was about the way the, the, the Queen handled this, this incredible transition we've had in her lifetime in terms of technology, in terms of the way society has changed and it's actually a warning she made in 1957 and she was queen by then, yes, yeah, she'd been queen uh, five years by this point, but it was her first ever televised Christmas address. The, the, the monarchy, the royal family of this country, does a Christmas message every year. Uh, before that point, it had been by radio, but this is the first one on television. So obviously, new technology and new medium, the nation able to look into the queen's drawing room for the first time. And she was talking about change, about the pace of technological change. Obviously, this is only a few years after the first nuclear bomb. This is the white heat of technology era. And she made this warning, and actually this made a shiver run down my spine when I read it this morning, uh, because it is so prescient, and this is a message that we really do have to heed even today. And if I may read it, she said, it is not new inventions which are the difficulty. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. And she said that these people would have religion thrown aside Morality and personal and public life made meaningless, meaningless, and honesty counted as foolishness and self-interest set up in the place of self-restraint. Now, if our political leaders today, if our cultural leaders today, if the ordinary man and woman on the street today could, could learn and heed those words, what a better world would be in. Yeah, well stated, and it's just such a it's such a deep topic. It's such a deep topic, particularly from an American perspective, because there there is a admission to our uh, appreciation of the Queen that sometimes there are different ways to do government to have leadership, and we don't like. Any sort of authoritarianism in the United States, I shy away from it personally. I'm very libertarian-minded in my heart. But Joel summed it up as what she represented was tradition, faith, order, and ritual. And those are all good things. And this is something that we're losing all of them in the United States, that our traditions are completely going by the wayside as we continue to live this sort of virtual life um, where we become more secular and we spend less time uh, communing with people for uh, we spend less time dressing up and going out uh, faith of course is similar we're, we're getting more secular uh, our life seems to be less ordered and more chaotic every second unless of course we're rolling over for a government covid rules and the ritual is so important and it's something that we've shied away from we've turned away from 
uh, because we feel like it's burdensome, because we feel like it's pointless. And I think seeing examples from people who we respect, from people who clearly are living a full life and are incredibly powerful and admired, but are also somewhat humble, like the queen herself, is I think necessary. I think it's necessary. And there aren't many role models out there who are displaying that on a day in, day out basis. But Oliver, I want to speak to you about the humbleness that someone who could literally be the queen of England for 70 years, uh, that came through almost every second. Uh, was it always like that? Would she always have that wiring? Because, you know, you contrast that, of course, with the other famous royal uh, right now, who's not uh, uh, really royal at all, which is Meghan Markle, the perhaps the most solipsistic person walking the earth uh it, it's pretty stark but i'd speak to this yeah you're, it is pretty stark and i'll get to, i suppose i'll get to that after I the, the first question you asked which is has the queen always been like this and the very important thing to take away from what i'm about to say is that there are not very monarchies left on earth if you looked at a map of the of the of the, of the world 110 120 years ago it was almost all monarchies and there's only a handful of them left now and, and the british monarchy is really the only major one left and there's a very good reason for that which is that the at the key moment when a lot of these monarchies were falling in the late victorian era the early 20th century that's where the really the churn was when a lot of the republics we have today were being created um, the British monarchy was smart when a lot of others were dumb. They realized that times were changing and they realized they would have to change with that change. Although obviously it is a, a, the, a monarchy is an agent of conservatism, they realized they would have to do something or else it would be, you know, a firing squad behind the chemical sheds, which unfortunately is how a lot of other monarchies ultimately ended. Um, and the British monarchy managed this, and this is something that the Queen in her own time has continued in a low-key way. But as, um, as, as, the, as a society has evolved, you know, with or without the, the royal family, the Queen has changed with that. And there's been a lot of elements of that. You know, we talked earlier about her 1957 speech in which she basically laid down the perfect blueprint of how, to, uh, how, how a society can survive rapid technological change. Um, but then we also have the way she dealt with the coming of television, the coming of technology, the coming of you know new rights and new peoples and the way this country has changed. So a really clear way that actually she changed with this was, and I actually promised I wouldn't talk about Princess Diana today because I don't feel like it's the right day for it. But you ask the question, I've got to do it. When Princess Diana died in 1997, there was a big change in the monarchy then. Up until that point, although it had changed to keep the times, the monarchy was very, very closed. It was very, very um, off-limits. It was very private. Yeah, despite its yeah, obviously enormous national importance in terms of the constitution, it was a closed shop. And, it, and the great emotional outpouring at the time of the death of Princess Diana it actually damaged the monarchy because they were seen to be very cold and distant. And that was, a, that was a bad time for them. And the Queen basically redesigned the way the monarchy worked at that point. So it would be more open. You would see more of the royals. You'd see more of their inner lives. It would be more personal. And she struck, I think, an absolutely perfect balance there. And, you know, in terms of, like, it could have gone too far. And you actually see, I think, with Harry and Meghan, what too far looks like. Um, you know, pity poor Prince Harry. He was by far... 15 years ago, the most popular royal in the UK, probably bar the Queen. He was a young, dashing man, man of action, serving in the army in Afghanistan, charming, playful. And, you know, suffice to say, that's all gone wrong. But they're oversharers, aren't they? 
Harry and Meghan going on going on the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, and you know that's 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 an example of how it can go too far. But actually, well, no, it's, all it's all about themselves. It's all about themselves. They don't they don't have any sense of that tradition. They don't have any sense of that ritual. It's all about um, it, it's all about how do we promote ourselves? How do we make ourselves more more get more attention? Exactly, and it's interesting actually because one of the we believe, obviously, I say that the royal family has opened up, um, and it has, but you know, obviously a lot of it is still behind closed doors. And just a warning to the listeners at home, a lot of what you read about the royal family is very, very questionable in the newspapers. A lot of it is down to royal insiders, royal reporters. There's no way to qualify and, and prove any of this stuff. It's you know, Just bear that in mind, everybody, for the rest of your lives, because I read a lot, and I'm like, you cannot prove that. But um, something that we believe, something we believe we understand, is that Meghan Markle, as she was, yeah, her, her unmarried name, um, fell out with the royal family because she wanted her children to be princes and princesses. And actually, under royal convention, they were too far away from the centre, like they were too far removed by generations and generations from the Queen to actually get those titles because the royal family is quite small. Um, and Harry should should know that. Like he, you know, he's an intelligent guy, I guess. And he knows the rules of his own family, the own institution he was born into, and why he didn't explain that to his wife is, is a mystery. But she apparently took this very badly. But obviously, the, you know, regrettably, the Queen, the Queen has now died, and that means that the whole line of succession kind of moves up a tier. So everybody's been bumped up one, which means that as of yesterday afternoon, Harry and Meghan's children are princes and princesses now. Um, so that's a, a small change in the world, but, uh, well, perhaps one that will make Meghan very happy. Uh, Oliver Lands, our London Bureau Chief, and it always is good when he's on because he knows so much about uh, the subject that we task him with at Brightport News. Let's go to the succession, Oliver. What does it look like? Can it really take a year? And uh, what is your hopes for the King Charles uh, uh, tenure? Well, there's a there's a lot of sort of elements here that, that are working, and some of them have already happened, and some are yet to happen still. So the, the way the the traditions and rules of the British Constitution work is that uh, actually the succession happens immediately. Uh, the millisecond uh, the Queen was uh, declared, or by, I suppose by her doctor, to have died, um, her, the heir apparent, who is her son um, Charles, immediately becomes king. There's no proclamation process involved with that. There's no deciding who the heir is. Um, he's the heir apparent, and, and the very moment she passed uh, he becomes uh, king and actually as part of this um this 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 constitutional process we actually have a tradition in the united kingdom of a of a particular salutational greeting uh, that uh, say government um, officials when they're reading out the announcement or even just ordinary people and you know you people like me you know uh, would would say uh, when discussing this with other people, you know, and it was said a lot yesterday, let me tell you, and this recognises the instance, the instancy of that process. Uh, we say, the Queen is dead, long live the King. Now you can imagine that if um, one King had died and another King uh, was created in that process, so you know, a King died and his son became King, as will presumably happen one day uh, when uh, Charles III uh, is an old man and, and his son uh, follows in his footsteps. 
um, you'd have an even stranger salutation, because it sounds like a, a terrible contradiction. Uh, one British person might say to another, the king is dead, long live the king, <laughs> which, yeah, out of context, it really sounds quite funny. So, so you have that sort of instant handover of power, that, that, and, and that's, you, so you could kind of have a, a, an equivalence in the U.S., um, as you have with the you know the line of succession, if and that's this all dates back to the Cold War, doesn't it? This process you have that there is never not a president because there always has to be somebody with a nuclear football and somebody always has to be ready to respond, um, and it you know it's instantaneous. If the president is is, is killed, then you know, the next guy instantly becomes the president that moment. It, so it's like that. But there is a process now which follows. Like I said in the first half. Um, you know, the United Kingdom is in mourning now, so uh, to and, and, and that means you know, to like yeah. What does that mean exactly? Weeks. I know there's a ten day mourning period. What does that mean? Yes, yeah, so there's a ten day mourning period where um, and there's a lot of things that are involved here. Flags are at half mast. Um, if you look at newspapers, the front pages are going to be a lot less colourful. Um, ordinary Britons, you know, men, for instance, you will see a lot of black ties being worn. Um, traditionally, uh, for instance, when the last king died back in uh, 1952, uh, it was also very common to wear a black armband on the left arm, the left arm being closest to the human heart. Um, I imagine that tradition will be seen a lot less these days, although among conservatives, traditionalists and conservatives, I, I know it is being done. Uh, when I I went out uh, to the bar to raise a glass to Her Majesty last night after I finished work, and I was certainly wearing a, a black armband uh, on my left arm. So that's you know, it, these are all these traditions. You'll see flags at half-mast, uh, black ribbons um, being um, tied onto flags or, or across you know, sitting room mirrors. Yeah, this is all. This is all kind of ancient stuff. I know it all seems very um, kind of almost bizarre in this modern world, but there is an element of superstition to it. There's an element of tradition to it, and it's it's about externalizing grief and processing great events. And I suppose that's why we have uh, traditions. It's it's how humans process these things. So, so 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 yeah yeah. So so King Charles, or as again he can change his name when will the coordination be could conceivably be a ways off and i mean it'll be a huge 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 international news when it happens but it takes a while to plan that stuff etc actually actually that has now happened i like you i was expecting that to be a process that would take some time i i didn't believe it would happen on the day i thought everything would be held back to give the country time to process but actually i think the palace uh, of course you know buckingham palace is now uh, Charles's his personal office. You know, it used to be Clarence House, which is the the official office, if you like, of the the Prince of Wales as he was. Um, but actually, within hours, um, it was revealed that he would be taking his own regnal name. So he is King Charles III. Okay. Now, I had speculated that he might not, because the uh, there's a lot of associations with the previous two Charleses. And I'm, I'm sure I'm telling your listeners nothing they don't already know when I say that Charles I was beheaded. And I talked earlier in the show about this war we had back in the 17th century over who, is, who has primacy, is it Parliament or is it the King? And uh, it turned out that uh, the, the, the Parliament side won that war and they killed the King over it. Um, so there's obviously a very negative association with the word name Charles there. Uh, but then his son, Charles II, uh, who brought the monarchy back, um, in the in the late 17th century, he led the so-called Restoration, uh, and actually that was a very happy time uh, for England. The period that that sort of 20 year, I think it was 15 to 20 years we had without a monarchy, we were led by a man called Oliver Cromwell. 
uh, who was essentially, as we understood, as we'd call it today, a dictator. Um, it was a very harsh period, a lot of laws, a lot of arrests, a lot of executions. Um, it was not a good time. So people were actually very, very happy to have the monarchy back. And Charles II was a very jolly king. He was a happy king. Um, you know, the, the Puritans who led the country during the interregnum had you know, banned Christmas. They'd banned theatre. They'd banned plays. And the king brought all of these things back, and he's actually very well remembered. So you know, as I say, there was a question there as to whether Charles would want to be associated with those previous kings. Clearly, he's happy to use his own name, and he is Charles III. And that was announced, I think, actually, the first time it was used officially was by the Prime Minister yesterday. Prime, Prime Minister Liz Truss um, came out. So, but Oliver, when, when are we going to see the big time correlation that we've seen all those photos of 70 years ago and images and great, video? Great question. So, the process is quite long. We have this 10 day mourning period now. Um, normally, the, um, the, the, the royal funeral would be at the end of that 10-day process, but actually because the Queen died in Scotland, not in London, that might be extended to 12 days because there's more logistics, so you've got to move the Queen in state, and that'll probably be done by train. Uh, but then it's not going to be straight into a coronation. That's probably not going to happen for a year, eight years, sorry, eight months to a year. That's today's broadcast. Thanks to all of you who went to mysonhunter.com and got a copy of the film, checked it out. They can't thank you enough. Producer Zach and Greg Eben made the show possible. And go to brightport.com. Sharing our content is also helpful as well. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.